The word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. Well, this morning we're starting a new series. Well, at least we're going to have one message on it. Uh, on the book of Romans, from the book of Romans. Um, I don't know about you, but Romans is a great book and it's lifted up by theologians as being the book and it's talked about as being the Himalayas and this is the Romans is the, or Romans 8 is the peak part of, of that book and lots of things are said about this book but when I actually come to read it, I, I read it in different translations and I, that is English versions, not different translations of Greek or anything like that, let's not go that far, but I find it a difficult book to understand. So it's like, yeah, okay, I understood that bit. And as I read on, I get a bit confused. And so I'm aware of the fact that it's not the easiest of books to get into. So hopefully, as we go through it, or as we dig into it, I'm going to try to uncover some things and pull out some points so that we get the understanding of it into our hearts. And that therefore, that God can use that and bring us more understanding and try to break into some of the language, if you like, of the book so that it, it makes more sense to us. That's, that's the aim, and we pray with God's help, he will help us with that. So to start off with, I thought, really, we just need a bit of a bit of background, and a bit of background this morning, first of all, on Paul. Now, many of you, I know, are familiar with Paul. Some of you may not be. It's good for us just to get back into our minds things about Paul. So we first meet Paul actually under the name of Saul in Acts chapter 9. He was a Jew, and what he says of himself, which I'll read to you from Philippians, is this. He says that, Philippians 3 verses 5 and 6, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. That gives you an understanding of where Paul had got to. He was brought up, yes, he was brought up uh, as a Roman citizen, brought up as a, he was also born as a Jew, he became a Pharisee, and he got to this point in his life where he was a good Pharisee. He was a good Pharisee. He was a good synagogue attender. He did all the right things. He followed the laws, he followed the, the sacrifices, he did all the right things. As for righteousness, so within himself, he felt, I've made it. Within himself, yeah, okay, there were struggles, but you know what? As long as I adhere to the things that God has called me to do through the law, and as long as I give myself to that, then I'm right on there, and I am a righteous person. That is what Paul thought about himself. So he was living right in terms of the Jewish laws. He felt accepted by God because he was doing that. And if you like, he walked around with an understanding of, guys, look, if you want to see what a good Christian, a good Jewish person, I should say, looks like, then I'm trying to be an example for you. That's what Paul was like in his life. And so I think even as I say it like that, you can sense a a hint of arrogance. Let's just put that about it. 
There's a sense of like, I've put my chest out because I'm right. I don't know about you lot, but I'm at least following the rules. That's how Paul is. But if you do know the story of Paul, then you will know that one day he was on the road to Damascus. He was going to that city, the city of Damascus, because he was going there to get rid of, find and get rid of Christians who were really annoying as far as he was concerned because they were not following all the ways of the law. And so he was on the route to Damascus and he has this encounter where a light came upon him. And uh, in fact, this is the version of his story which he shared with King Agrippa, which is written down in Acts 26. So let me read it to you. Talking to King Agrippa, Paul says, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Now, a lot of people talk Damascus Road experience. Well, it's true. Uh, this was an immensely significant uh, time in Paul's life. Paul, this Pharisee, had met with Jesus, the Messiah. And this encounter was totally transforming in his life. All his notions of what he thought Jesus was were completely blown apart by this one moment. The result of which is shown in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, where it says, and this is uh, yeah, where it says, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, I've deliberately quoted that from the King James because it, it gives the impression of what was written in the Greek. It says that Paul preached Christ. Now, Christ in Greek is the word anointed, or it means anointed. And the Jews were expecting the anointed one, the Messiah. So really what this is saying is, and straight away, Paul preached the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. Now, the reason that Paul had gone to Damascus was to remove all of those people who were believing that to get rid of them, because the, the Jewish people did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were expecting somebody else, or they're still hoping for somebody else. But now Paul had met this Messiah. He had met Jesus, and now he was proclaiming to all of the Jews, the Messiah has come, he is Jesus, and he is the Son of God. This is a radically tra transforming situation that had come to Paul. And so he who was an enemy of Jesus, literally an enemy of Jesus, now had a relationship with him. And a relationship that actually went very deep. Because actually when we come to the beginning of Romans, Romans 1, where Paul is introducing himself in this letter, he says this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul a servant of Jesus Christ. 
That is how it's put actually in the Greek. It's paulos doulos is what he says. Even rhymes. Paulos doulos, Paul a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who are here last week, I was using an analogy about allowing Jesus to be the driver of our car, our lives. That one of the issues that we are all facing is the fact that we keep trying to take over control of the driving seat when that's supposed to be in Jesus' position. He is supposed to be the one that is driving our lives. And he is the one taking us to where we need to go. We need to be following him. But Paul had learned that lesson. He was there. And he was proud to say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And don't forget, he's talking into a society where slaves were in bondage. Slaves were looked down upon. In fact, the life of a slave was really hard. The life of a slave was that he hoped he might be able to earn enough money that he might be able to buy his way out of being a slave. And yet Paul is saying, I'm happy to be a slave of Jesus Christ. In fact, I want it to be known that is who I am. That is how he introduces himself, and that gives us an indication of the depth of change that has come about in Paul's life. Romans 1, as I say, says that he is a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ, that's set apart for the gospel. Paul says that he's set apart for the gospel. The gospel, when we hear that, I don't know about you, but I hear the word gospel, and so what I think of is I start to think of like, okay, how do we explain how do you become a Christian to somebody? How do you go through all the different bits and pieces? What do you need to say to that? How do, and that's sort of what encompasses in that the gospel. It is the good news about Jesus Christ. But the gospel really is that announcement. In fact, what it really means is that I'm announcing good news to you. It's good news that we've just dedicated baby Joseph. When he arrived, there was the gospel according to baby Joseph being announced. He's here. That's the gospel. And so Paul is saying, now I am going to be proclaiming the good news. I'm making an announcement of good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ. That is what he was giving his life to. And that, if you like, gives us a very quick summary of Paul himself. Now I want to move on from a summary of Paul to actually just giving a little bit of background onto the people who Paul was writing to. Romans 1 verse 7 tells us, because it says that the letter he is writing to is to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. So he's writing to the Christians in Rome. Now Christianity had reached Rome without Paul going and visiting. It had already got there. Many people think that it's probably got there originally from merchants who happened to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and they were affected by what happened on the day of Pentecost and they took the good news and the transformation that occurred to them on that day back to the city where they were from. Because let's not forget, Rome was the center of the universe at this point, the known world. That's where everything happened. Rome is the big city where people came from and where people went to. So Christianity had been in Rome for some time. And what we know, by the time this letter was written, that there were a substantial number of Christians who were meeting in different locations around the city. But due to the style of the letter, we don't get much information of that in the first chapter. But if you were to suddenly move on to the last chapter, because that's the way that these letters are, are, are sorted out, 
then you'll find there Paul's greetings to the people in Rome. So this enables us to understand all the sort of people that he was writing to. Let me read a few verses to you from Romans 16. And don't think that I'm now wrapping up the whole of this chapter. This is the series. So we started at verse 1. We're now finishing chapter 16. I hope you've understood Romans. Um, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. I asked you to re- I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in, G- in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Notice there that that's indicating one of the places where there is a gathering of Christians. Greet my dear friend Eponatus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, and so on and so on. I could read more. In actual fact, if you go home and look at uh, um, Romans chapter uh, 16, you'll find that Paul names 27 people in total in this chapter who he's sending his personal greetings to. So there's quite a few people that he knows that are there uh, amongst the Christian community of Rome. It is thought that Phoebe, the deacon from Centria, was the person who actually took the letter uh, and acted, as it, like, as it were, like Paul's postman for the letter. He mentions Priscilla and Aquila, and uh, it says they risked their lives for me. Really, what he's saying is it's like they, they took a bullet for me. They, stood in the, they, they protected me even unto death. So he speaks extremely highly of them. Commentators note these things, and I think this is interesting for us to understand. If you look at the whole of chapter 16, then you notice there are Greek names. Asyncritus, got that one right, Fledglon and Hermes. There are Latin names, Amphilitus, Urbanus, and Julia. There are Jewish names, Aquila and Mary. There are names that would indicate, and I don't understand this, but they would indicate that they were slaves. Ampolitus being one of them, Asynchronitus being another, and Nereus being another. There's also the understanding that there were wealthy people there too, because Paul mentions the household of Aristobulus. And this indicates when you're talking about a household, you're not just talking about one person, you're talking about somebody who's got a large villa, Someone who's got slaves and servants who live with them and their family within that villa. So you're talking about somebody who's wealthy. So what we see in looking at this letter was that it was addressed to a vast array, a a, a diverse Christian community. There were people from different cultural backgrounds, Jews, Greeks, as well as Romans. There were people from different class backgrounds, people who were slaves, people who were rich, And of course, Paul mentions women in the sense of they're named in roles. So he was also championing the roles that women were playing in the church. It's believed that the letter was written by Paul when he was in Corinth, because Centria is a port near to Corinth, and that's where it would have been sent from. So here is Paul writing to this diverse group of Christians meeting across the city of Rome. And as I've said, it's... Rome is the city of the world at this time. And Paul knew or had a desire in his heart to see the gospel, the great news of Jesus Christ being proclaimed across this city, not just so they could hear it, but so that this city may be transformed by it. 
So that gives us a bit of background of Paul and a bit of background as to who he was writing to. And now my third point here is good news for Rome. Good news for Rome. Absolutely. And we're going to look at verses 14 to 17 because these verses, if you like, contain the key teaching of what Paul then wants to expound upon as we go through this letter. So if we can grasp what he's getting at here, then that's certainly going to help us as we continue to look at the letter. So let me read these verses to you. Romans 1, verses 14 to 17. Paul says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, as I've said to you, the problem I find is that even in reading that, there's some terms there that, okay, they're great terms, but I want to try to understand them. So if you like, this is my version. If I was writing, I'm not saying it's correct in every way. This is my version of what I've just read. Listen, folks. I have an obligation, says Paul, to tell everyone the good news of God. Literally everyone, all tribes, all nations, all classes, and all segments of society. That is why I'm so keen to get to Rome and to preach to everyone there. I want you to know I'm not ashamed, but rather am incredibly excited about the gospel because it is the power of God alone, and it brings salvation to everyone who believes in it, whoever they are. Salvation that is received by faith only. Now, I want to just bring out a few points from those verses. First of all, Paul says that he's under obligation. Paul says, I'm under obligation. And translated literally, it says, I'm a debtor. So there's an understanding, like, well, okay, well, who are you in debt to, Paul? You're not in debt to the Romans, surely, because you haven't actually gone there. There's nobody you could be in debt to. So I just want to give us a bit of understanding of that. If I borrow a thousand pounds from, let's say, Kevin, thank you, Kevin, thousand pounds, very nice. Am I allowed to spend it on whatever I want? Now, if I borrowed a thousand pounds from Kevin, then I am in debt to Kevin for a thousand pounds. We understand that, but that's not the type of debt that Paul is talking about. But equally, if I borrowed, let's say, a thousand pounds from Kevin, or he gave it, or no, Kevin gives me a thousand pounds, and he says, Jonathan, this isn't for you, but I want to make sure that Nana gets it. So I become the, the, the go-between, if you like. Jonathan, Kevin says to me, here's a thousand pounds, Jonathan, please give it over to Nana. Now, in that regard, I become indebted to Kevin until I have given over the thousand pounds to Nana, because I'm the go-between. He's given it to me, but it's not mine. I've got to pass it on. I need to pass it on. And it's that sense of indebtedness that Paul feels. God has come to him. God has revealed himself to him. God has transformed him. God has taken him out of a miry place and built him up. God has totally t changed his thinking and his ways. God has moved in his life. He has placed so much in, and he is asking him, now will you go and share this with all people? That is the indebtedness. That is the obligation 
that Paul feels. He is obligated to pass on what God has done for him. I reflect in my own life and think, do I feel that obligation? Have I got an understanding of how much God has done for me that I would pass that on to other people? We know that Paul felt that because that's how he acted in his life. It's just a challenge for us to think about. Paul says, I'm obligated, but he also goes on to say, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, it's slightly strange and a slightly negative way because the meaning behind it is that he's extremely excited about it. That's the the understanding, but that's not the way he puts it. He says, I'm not ashamed about it. So he comes about this in a negative way. This is what I mean with Paul. Paul, why don't you just say, I'm very, very excited about the gospel because we understand that. But he's putting it across in a way because it's felt that maybe the Romans, the people he was writing to, also felt slightly ashamed of the gospel. Paul had already described to the Corinthians how the gospel was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And it's probably for that reason. Often we can feel ashamed because when we start announcing the gospel, people look at us and say, you guys are stupid. What, you don't believe in that, do you? What, that God is still alive? I mean, how can there be a God alive because he's done all of this? When we were out on Street Pastors on Friday, we were talking to a guy, and that was very much his impression. How can there be a God? In fact, interestingly enough, we met two people who had lost their parents. One had lost both his parents, one had lost his mother at a young age. Young guys deeply hurting because of that event. And there's a sense in which, well, how can you believe in God? And you know what it's like when you share the gospel and people think, well, that's all right for you. Well, you don't believe that, do you? You get all of those type of reactions because often the gospel is treated like that. The gospel, Paul said, was a stumbling block to Jews and it's been foolishness to Gentiles. Jews are those that are chosen by God, as we know. Gentiles is everybody else. Okay, so we fit into the everybody else. So just to help, if that helps anybody, then there you go. And when you think about it, what was Paul talking about? Paul was talking about some Jewish guy who was born in a stable, surrounded by animals at his birth, brought up in a small village, who trained to be as a carpenter. And then this carpenter from Nazareth, some backward town, ends up being nailed to a cross and was crucified, and yet he's going around actually announcing that this was the chosen one of God, it was God's son, and he is the saviour of the world. When you think of it like that, you think, like, there's not much in it, is there? And yes, what are you talking about, Paul? That sounds completely mad, and that generally is the world's response. So it is understandable why people may feel ashamed. But... When we come to understand that no matter how intelligent or financially well-off we may be, how morally upright or ethical we may be, or however great we may think we are compared to others, it counts for nothing before God, and it cannot save us from our sin. That is a very, very important point for us to understand. Luke 16, verse 15, Jesus said this to his disciples, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And look, the world attaches great significance to our education and our intellect, our learning and our understanding. 
And not only that, we consider moral character and striving to, to uphold moral values to be extremely worthwhile too. Yes, the world glories in all of those things, but the gospel doesn't. The gospel of Jesus Christ reverses the world's ideas in all respects and in all ways without exception. The gospel places the able man on exactly the same level as those who are most lacking in intellect and ability. It reduces everyone to the same common level. If you like, the offense of the cross is this. That I am so condemned, so lost, so utterly helpless without Jesus Christ. If he had not died for me, I would never know God. That is the offense of the cross. Because we need Jesus. We, we thrive on our intelligence. We want to be applauded for our efforts. But when it comes to the gospel, man of himself has nothing to offer. In fact, he can do nothing about his lostness. This is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But it is the power of God for our salvation and for anyone who believes. The gospel is the announcement of good news. Here is the good news. I was hopelessly lost in sin, and despite every effort that I might have made, I have continually come up short, and I have been utterly useless and helpless. But in that position, God stepped into my life, and he stepped into your life to rescue you. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. When you look at back at Paul's life, that Damascus Road experience, you can start to understand how much was going on. Beforehand, he was the guy, and I'll put it in modern day understanding, he's the guy who went to church. He's the guy that sang the worship songs. He's the guy that prayed the prayers. He's the guy that did it. And he felt... I've got it together. I'm doing the right thing. If those people in the world want to look at my life, they'll see what a Christian is. That's the attitude that he was carrying around in himself. He wasn't trying to be overtly arrogant. He was just trying to say, look at me, follow me, do what I do, and you're going you're gonna to be good. You're going to be the people that God wants. Because he was looking at it in terms of what he could do. And what I notice in my own life is an awful lot of what I do well, I can do. I am good because I've attended a prayer meeting. I am good because I've read my Bible. How many chapters do you read? Well, I managed to read this number. You, you, because as long as I am better than somebody else, or I have done my bit, then I am righteous. I'm sorry, this is how I feel sometimes. This is how we feel. And what the gospel is saying, forget it. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that you can do, nothing that you can do that is going to bring you to the standard that God wants. Well, hang on a second. I've got a great education. I've got a degree. I'm not talking about myself right now because I haven't. 
I've got a degree, I've done this, I've earned this money, I've got this standard, I've achieved this. Because in the world's eyes, I'm trying to build myself up, I'm trying to be somebody. Look at me, look at what I've done with my life. Look at the success that I have made. It counts for nothing in being able to remove your sin. There is only one who is good enough. And he was sent by God, his only son, to pay the price of my sin and your sin so that we might go to heaven. That is the good news. And you can see that Paul, who had his mindset, these idiots who are professing that Jesus was the Messiah, I'm going to go and murder them. I'm going to get rid of them. We're going to have the pure Jewish faith. And suddenly he meets with what? You are the Messiah? You're the only one? Everything that I had and I counted for myself as righteousness, I now treat as rubbish, as dung, says Paul. That's what he came to. He had a complete turning around, a complete shifting of everything in his mind, all that he'd been through. He had to refilter it, re-go through it in the light of what Jesus has done for me. I have been praying since I've been reading this, Lord, I need help in this. Help me to see where I'm being self-righteous. Help me to see where I, I... Help me to see the things that I can't see because I'm not sure that I'm fully in that place where I'm saying, thank you, Lord, it's only you. It's only you. There's nothing that I can do. It's only you that can reach me, that has saved me. Okay, I'm just going to press on just a, a fraction more. He goes on, therefore, into, from uh, that verse in verse 16, saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And then it's, if you like, he sort of unpacks that. He wants to unpack that to make more understanding by bringing in verse 17. For he says, for in the gospel, for in this good news... The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. What does this mean? Well, again, this is a, a, a verse that has been discussed throughout church history, not just recent history, throughout church history. And if we can summarize the various viewpoints and things that people say about it, I'm going to try to put it in these three points. Within this good news is a wonderful quality of God, an amazing activity of God, and an incredible gift from God. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. This good news is a wonderful quality of God. God is a righteous God. That is, the, that is his quality. Righteousness is the quality of the of God himself. It describes his character. God will always act rightly. God, who is the judge of all the earth, will always do what is right. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. God is holy in all his ways. And here Paul is saying that God's righteousness is supremely seen in the cross. When God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, he did it to demonstrate his justice and in order that he might be seen as, the, as both the one who is in himself completely just 
and also the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There's a lot of words in that. I'm sorry. I'm reading it and I'm thinking, that's good. But does it really make sense? Okay. When God presented Jesus as the sacrifice of atonement, Jesus is the only one who was the sufficient sacrifice to pay the price of my sin and your sin. The price of atonement. To make me right with God, Jesus is the only one who could pay that price. God is just. He felt just in that is the just sacrifice. And if I receive that sacrifice, then I can justify, I can make those who have been sinners, they can be clean because of that sacrifice. The quality of God is that God is a righteous God. An amazing activity of God, he comes to our rescue. We don't deserve it. He has come to our rescue. Jesus has come for you. Despite all of your world, all the stuff you know about, he has come to you to meet you. He has come to me to save me. Of all the people in the world, all the things that are going on in the world, all the things that we can think, well, there are other places where it would be good if Jesus was there right now in Israel and in Palestine, in Ukraine and in Russia. All of these places where we think like Afghanistan, whether it's earthquakes or wars or whatever. Jesus, you need to get to those places. But he has come for you and he's come for me because the God of heaven desires relationship. And he wants to bring salvation to us. It's like, whoa. God. The one who seems so far away. The one who seems outside of us. He has acted to come to our rescue. That is the good news. Psalm 98 verse 2. The Lord has made his salvation known. And has revealed his righteousness to the nations. That is what has happened in the good news. And an incredible gift from God. He bestows on us a right status with himself. The righteous status which God requires if we are ever going to stand before him. The right standing that we need for us to stand before God. Okay, The righteous status that has been achieved through the cross and is revealed through the gospel. And this is it. It's freely gifted to us if we trust, if we have faith in Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great commentator on this particular book, said this. The gospel is not an encouragement to self-effort. It is the announcement of what God has done in order to save us. Isaiah talks about all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. But it says of this, of Jesus in Romans 5, Paul says this, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? In this good news announcement, 
you hear the righteousness of God. The morally upright way of God is revealed and it is received by faith. It's God's way of, and his initiative, if you like, of putting sinners right with himself by giving them a righteousness not of their own but from him which has been given to us so that we have a righteous status. Because we have to have a righteous status for us to be able to stand before God. And God achieves that through the sacrifice of the cross. And he gives us that righteous status because of Jesus. As I say, remember Paul's background. Remember the things that he was wrestling with. How he had been through a self-righteous way, if you like. And he had to have that completely turned around. For him, understanding what God had done for him was the thing that motivated him. And that caused him now to say, right, I need to get out and to share this good news. Because it's not about what anybody can do. It's not about how rich or poor they are or what they think. This is the only way that people will get a right standing before God. And it's only gifted by God himself. It is great news. But there's a question that arises. Well, that's great news, but why is this good news really necessary, if you like? That's the next question that Paul asks. That's the news. Why is this really necessary? And so as we're going to go on into chapter 2, indeed even on into chapter 3, we are going to look at how this is good news both for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And understanding hopefully will help us gain more as we continue to look through this book. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning. Or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.